0: the quest for a theory of everything you're listening to are we there yet the radio show exploring space exploration hi i'm brendan byrne before he died einstein was working on a theory of everything it aims to combine all the forces in the universe into one beautiful mathematical equation to explain everything That equation remains incomplete, but physicists like Michio Kaku are charging ahead and using new scientific observations from gravitational wave detectors and particle accelerators. Professor Kaku is a professor of theoretical physics at City College of New York and the author of a new book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. He joins us to talk about the work by modern-day physicists to solve the equation and the controversy surrounding the core of this problem's solution and how understanding this equation can help answer big questions of the universe, like what happened before the Big Bang. The quest for Theory of Everything, that's ahead on Are We There Yet, here on WMFE, America's Space Station. So what happened before the Big Bang, or what's on the other side of a black hole, and is time travel possible? Theoretical physicist Michio Kaku says we can answer all those questions, If only we had an equation to encompass all the forces in our universe. That equation is the so-called God equation, the elusive theory of everything. Kaku has been working to solve the equation since his younger days and says we're closer than ever to completing it. He joins us now to talk about those efforts to explain everything. Professor Kaku, thanks for speaking with us. My pleasure. So the quest for a theory for every—or a theory of everything— that covers quite a bit of ground. What, what problem are you trying to solve? What question are you
1: trying to answer with this equation? When I was eight years old, I remember that a great scientist had just died. And all the newspapers flashed a picture of his desk. That's all. Just a picture of his desk with an open book. And the caption said, this is the unfinished theory of the greatest scientist of our time. So I thought to myself, wow, why couldn't he finish that book? What's so hard that the greatest scientists of our time couldn't finish it? Why didn't he ask his mother? What's so difficult? (laughs) So I was fascinated by this quest. So I went to the library, and over the years, I found out that this man's name was Albert Einstein, and that he had spent 30 years of his life chasing after one equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to quote, read the mind of God. So I thought to myself, wow, this is greater than any murder mystery. This is more fascinating than any adventure story I can think of. I had to know what was in that book. Well, anyway, when I was in high school, I decided to be part of this great revolution. So I told my mother one day, mom, can I have permission to build an atom smasher in the garage? A 2.3 million electron volt Betatron particle accelerator in the garage? And my poor mom said, Sure, why not? And don't forget to take out the garbage. Well, I took out the garbage. I assembled 400 pounds of transformer steel, 22 miles of copper wire, and I built a 2.3 million electron volt to an accelerator in the garage. One day, it was finally ready. I plugged it in, I closed my eyes, shut my ears, and I heard this crackling sound as six kilowatts of power surged through my atom smasher. And then, and then I heard a pop, pop, pop sound as I blew out all the circuit breakers in the house. The whole sure house happy, huh? plunged in darkness, <laughs> and my poor mom would say, where's the fuse box? Why couldn't I have a son who learns how to play baseball or basketball? And for God's sake, why can't he find a nice Japanese girlfriend? Why does he have to build these machines in the garage? Well, that's how I got started. That's how I got started trying to be part of this great journey to complete Einstein's dream of a theory of everything. As you write in the book, it it is a theory of everything and
0: it could uncover answers to these questions that, you know, scientists and and visionaries think about all the time, like what happened before the Big Bang or, you know, what's on the other side of a black hole? How? How, How? How is it going to accomplish answering those questions?
1: Well, you know, all of biology can be rewritten in the language of chemistry, which is more fundamental. All of chemistry can be rewritten in terms of physics. All of physics, in turn, can be written in terms of Relativity, the theory of black holes in the Big Bang, and also the quantum theory, the theory of lasers and transistors, the Internet and computers. But these two theories do not like each other. They have resisted all attempts at unification, and that's where this unified field theory comes in. We want that one equation that would allow us to unify the theory of the big with the theory of the small and go beyond Einstein. You see, Einstein's theory breaks down. It breaks down at the instant of the Big Bang, when all hell breaks loose, and it breaks down at the center of a black hole. These are the two places where Einstein's theory are useless. That means we cannot resolve the question, is time travel possible? Are there gateways to other universes? Are there wormholes? What happened before the Big Bang? All the great questions cannot be answered within Einstein's framework. That's why he was chasing after this theory of everything, which would answer the question, what happened before the Big Bang? You see, Einstein's theory gives us a picture. Think of a bubble, a soap bubble. We live on the skin of this soap bubble, and the bubble's expanding. That's called the Big Bang Theory. But the new wrinkle in all this is that new theories, like string theory, say that there are other bubbles out there other bubbles, and we live in a multiverse of parallel universes. Sometimes these bubbles collide, merge to form a bigger bubble. Sometimes they split in half and create two baby bubbles, and that's the Big Bang. The Big Bang, we think, was the collision of bubbles or the fissioning of bubbles into two smaller bubbles, and that's where the universe was born. You said that, that this is based on string theory,
0: which you've been working on pretty much your, your entire career, but there are some critics uh, to string theory. Can, can you kind of address uh, what some of the criticism is on this and what your response would be to that?
1: Right. Well, first of all, string theory was born in some sense 2,000 years ago by the Greek philosopher Pythagoras. Pythagoras, by the Pythagorean theorem that we learned in elementary school, Pythagoras said that music, music is the unifying paradigm of the universe. And he got that idea by looking at a lyre string. You pluck a lyre string. The longer the lyre string, the lower the note. So he said, bingo, using mathematics, I can work out the mathematics of resonances, octaves, thirds, fifths, and that began the mathematical representation of music. Now we have string theory, which revives this 2,000-year-old dream of Pythagoras, that the universe is made out of tiny little vibrating strings. Each vibration corresponds to a particle. The electron could be like this, the quark could be like this, a neutrino could be like this. They're nothing but different vibrations of a string. So physics is the harmonies you can write down on a string. Chemistry is the melodies you can play on vibrating strings. The universe is a symphony of strings. And then the mind of God. The mind of God would be cosmic music resonating through 11 dimensional hyperspace. That's where the critics say, whoa, (laughs) stop there for a moment. 11 dimensions, higher dimensions. How do you test? How do you test a theory that goes way beyond the work of Albert Einstein? You need a particle accelerator, not like the one I built in my garage. You need a particle accelerator the size of the Milky Way galaxy. That's one of the main criticisms of string theory. First of all, that it has many solutions, maybe an infinite number of solutions. Each solution is a universe. Now that doesn't bother me for the following reason. How many solutions are there of Newton's equations? Well, an infinite number. There's a solution for a cannonball, a solution for a rocket, a solution for a football. Anything that you can throw into space is a solution of Newton's equation. So what's the difference? The difference is the initial conditions. You tell me that you're throwing a football. You tell me that you're bouncing a basketball. You're telling me that you're blowing up a rocket. Then I can calculate using Newton's laws of motion. Same thing for string theory. Every, every solution of string theory is a universe, an entire universe. Therefore, how many universes are there? Well, it depends on how you started it. Different initial conditions create different universes. So that's why I'm not, not worried about that problem. I'm more worried about experimental data. As Carl Sagan once said, remarkable claims require remarkable proof. Now, we have the Large Hadron Collider, costing over $10 billion. It found the God particle, the Higgs boson, but that's not enough. We want to know the equations that govern the God particle, and that's the God equation. And how are we going to do that? Well, several ways. One, the Japanese, Chinese, and the Europeans are now going to build, perhaps, a successor to the Large Hadron Collider, an even bigger atom smasher. Second, dark matter. What is the universe made of? Well, most of the universe is made out of this mysterious substance called dark matter. It's invisible. It holds the galaxy together. We're here today because of dark matter. There's dark matter in this room, but it's so faint we can't detect it. So we'll find dark matter in the laboratory. And what is dark matter? Perhaps the next octave of the string. We're the lowest octave, but there could be higher octaves, and that's where dark matter comes in. So you see, there are many ways in which we can begin the process of testing this theory.
0: And and, I mean, how close are we to that? I mean, these, you know, finding dark matter and building a larger collider. I mean, it it seems easy on paper, but I mean, are you optimistic that, that
1: you're going to find this equation in our lifetimes? Yes. See, see, first of all, I believe that some enterprising young person is going to solve this theory completely and calculate from first principles, the mass of a proton the mass of an electron. That would, that would be the end game right there. At the present time, nobody, nobody, but nobody can calculate the mass of a proton from first principles. That's Mm -hmm. what this theory gives us. It gives us the ability to calculate everyday life. You, me, stars, everything we see around us from first principles that would end the story right there. However, as you pointed out correctly, The Large Hadron Collider, its replacement won't come for many years. Dark matter, however, we have experiments going on right now. Many of them around the world searching for this mysterious dark matter. Once we find it, we can then compare it to the predictions of string theory. That could happen any day. It may take a decade, two decades, or it may be tomorrow. These detectors are waiting to find the the smashing of a proton, when a proton bumps into dark matter and blows up, we want to get that photograph of what happens when a proton bumps into dark matter. That could be any day now, or it could be decades in the future. I'm not a fortune teller. All I know is that the theory can predict what happens when protons bump into dark matter. And how quickly will we be able to answer those
0: big questions like what happened before the Big Bang once, someone does come up with the God equation. I mean, is this going to be an instant understanding of of our universe, or is it going to take even even more time and and more thinking into those big questions?
1: Well, the Nobel Prize was originally given to physicists who created the detector for gravity waves, predicted by Einstein in 1916. The next generation of gravity wave detectors will be in outer space One detector is called LISA, Laser Interferometry Space Antenna. It'll pick up vibrations from the instant of the Big Bang. Think about that for a moment. We have pictures of the Big Bang. Pictures of the Big Bang 300,000 years after the Bang. We want to take a picture of the Bang itself. That is a picture maybe a trillionth of a second at the instant of the Big Bang when the universe, the universe comes out from the uterus. And maybe, just maybe, we'll pick up an umbilical cord, an umbilical cord connecting our baby infant universe as it's born to a mother universe, because that is one solution of string theory, that there is a multiverse of universes. Universes are being born even as we speak someplace in the universe. That would give us evidence of the pre-Big Bang universe. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, the pre-Big Bang world can be accessible once you have gravity wave detectors capable of detecting vibrations at the instant of the Big Bang, and then you run the videotape backwards to before the Big Bang. That's how you do it. Our conversation with Professor Kaku
0: continues after the break, but before we go, I want to share next week's show. We're diving into planetary sciences first with We Martians host Jake Robbins. He's going to join us to talk about all the exciting news coming from NASA's Mars rover, Perseverance, as it explores Jezero Crater. And what's ahead for that tiny little helicopter set to take a test flight as early as next week. Then NC State's Paul Byrne is here to bring us up to speed on the latest saga on Venus and the search for phosphine gas. He'll tell us about 50-year-old data that could help researchers find that phosphine, a gas closely associated with the presence of life. That's next week here on Are We There Yet? on WMFE, America's Space Station. Stay listening. Our conversation with Professor Kaku continues in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with theoretical physicist and futurist Michio Kaku. Before the break, we talked about the God equation and how we're closer than ever to understanding how our universe works and what came before it. And Kaku's new book, *The God Equation: The Quest for a Theory of Everything*, we'll continue that conversation, but with a focus on the future. Out, outside the book, I know you're also a futurist, along with being a, a theoretical physicist. And, and I looked up one of your articles you wrote in 2013 for the New York Times, um, and a lot of the things that you wrote in there were were pretty spot on. We talked about, or you talked about, um, you know, augmented reality, uh, robots being being commonplace. Um, You've also talked a lot about uh, becoming a spacefaring nation and, and, or a spacefaring species. And I, I cover space here at WMFE um, here in Orlando. I watch the things that SpaceX, do, SpaceX does every day. It sounds like I'm, I'm writing science fiction sometimes. Uh, but I want to know what your thoughts are on the future of space exploration. When you look and see what these new space tech companies like SpaceX are
1: doing, you know, every day, what's the future like? Well, first of all, why did the manned space program collapse after we went to the moon? Well, it's a four-letter word, a dirty four-letter word, cost, C-O-S-T. In 1966, the Apollo space program consumed 5% of the federal budget, 5%. That's unsustainable. Now it's one-tenth of that. And now, however, we're witnessing the second era, not the first, the second era of space exploration. Costs are dropping. There's new visions coming out. Silicon Valley billionaires are opening their checkbooks and helping to underwrite many of the most imaginative space schemes. That's the difference. Rockets are reusable. Costs have gone down by a factor of maybe five. One day mom and dad will be able to have a Sunday picnic in outer space. This is a new era a new era, and we have to readjust our thinking. Think about that. To go to the moon takes three days. I think that our grandkids may have the option of honeymooning, honeymooning on the moon. Think about that. Space travel for the tourists, not just for the hardened astronauts. So we're witnessing a new era in space exploration where private enterprise, the federal government, have a new vision for space exploration. Elon Musk, for example, wants to have a two-planet or multi-planet species. The dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that's why there are dinosaurs here today to interrupt us as we talk about this. We have a space program, but the dinosaurs didn't. And then Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world, has another vision. And that vision is, he wants to create the Earth as a celestial jewel with all the pollution done in outer space. So we have two new visions. Back in the 60s, what was our vision? We had a vision back in 1969. Beat the Russians. Beat the Russians. Well, we did. So what happened to the space program? It pretty much collapsed. Now we're witnessing a revival of the space program. And that's what's so exciting.
0: Hmm. I find when I cover the space program, which I've been doing for about five years now, the development of it is just insanely fast. And, and I'm wondering if you envisioned that years ago when you started looking towards the future, that we would have reusable rockets by 2021 like we are now. I mean, is, is, it, is it happening quicker than you imagined, Professor?
1: Well, put it this way. NASA is great, but it's the agency to nowhere. It was criticized for decades as being the agency nowhere because all it did was spin wheels, spin wheels around the earth with the shuttle. And each shuttle mission cost about a billion dollars. I mean, think about it. Each shuttle mission cost about a billion dollars. And where did it go? It just spun around the earth. That's unstable. Sooner or later, you realize that private enterprise is going to come in and say, hey, we can make a buck. We can make a buck making faster rockets, cleaner rockets, new ideas, and so that was inevitable. It was inevitable that we would not continue to spend taxpayers' money year after year, a billion dollars per shot, on missions that simply spin wheels around the earth and come back down to earth again. Finally, I want to ask
0: you, uh, Professor. You are a, a familiar face and a familiar voice to a lot of people. You know, I grew up watching uh, your your uh, your face in, in documentaries and television shows. Um, I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts on the importance of science communication, especially now. Um, why is it important that scientists like yourself um, are able to tell the stories and, and generate the curiosity that that you do? Uh, to inspire the public um, to, to get into sciences? What, what's the role of science
1: communication these days? Well, first of all, we have to realize that we're all born scientists. We are born wondering why the sun shines. We're born wondering why the stars twinkle or where we come from. So we grow up with this fascination for the world. But then but then we hit the greatest destroyer of scientists known to science what is the greatest destroyer of young scientists junior high school (laughs) when we hit junior high school it's all over Mm -hmm. all of a sudden science is memorization memorization of stupid facts and figures that are totally irrelevant to our life memorizing the plant the parts of a flower without understanding evolution i mean (laughs) We're just burdened with all this information. Peer pressure, of Mm -hmm. course, kicks in. Scientists made boring and decoupled from everyday life. So it's no wonder that we lose scientists every day. But you see, Mm -hmm. we can't do that anymore. Because you see, the Cold War is over. We physicists used to go to Congress. And when we wanted a new machine, we would simply say one word, one word to Congress, Russia. And then Congress would say two words to us, how much? How much? (laughs) Those days are gone. We have to sing Uh for our supper. Our machine was called the, the super collider, the physics of the future, the super collider to be built outside Dallas, Texas. Bigger, much bigger than the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland. But in the last day of hearings, a congressman asked, quote, Will we find God with your machine? If so, I will vote for it. Well, the poor physicist didn't know what to say. Basically, he said, we will find the Higgs boson. Well, all the jaws hit the floor. Ten billion dollars for another goddamn subatomic particle. And the vote was taken a few days later, and the machine was canceled. Think about Mm -hmm. that. Now, since then, we physicists have asked ourselves the question, how should we have answered that question? The next time someone says, will we find God with your machine, what are we going to say? Well, I would have said this. I would have said, God, by whatever signs or symbols you ascribe to the deity, this machine, the supercollider, will take us as close as humanly possible to his greatest creation, Genesis, This is a genesis machine, a machine that on a small scale will recreate the biggest event in the history of the universe, its birth. Unfortunately, we said Higgs boson and our machine was canceled. So we physicists have to learn to sing for our supper. We have to energize young people. We have to energize the people who pay taxes that fund (laughs) our projects. We have to learn how to speak English and energize young people. And finally, what
0: advice do you have to give to those, those young people that want to follow in your footsteps and, and do the kind of science that you're doing and, and the kind of physics research that you do, but also be able to tell a compelling story that reaches a mass audience? How do you do it and what advice do you have for them?
1: Well, first of all, I ask people, where does wealth come from anyway? Jobs and productivity and wealth your future. Well, you talk to a uh, politician and they say it's taxes. Taxes is where wealth comes from. But you see, that simply robs Peter to pay Paul. That's a zero-sum game. That's not the origin of wealth. You talk to an economist. Where does wealth come from? And they say, oh, you just print money. Well, sooner or later, someone has to pay off the debt. Your grandkids pay off the debt. And so that's not the source of wealth. I say, The source of wealth, jobs, prosperity, is science and technology. That's where jobs, wealth, wealth comes from. And that's why we have to make an investment in education, an investment in science, because it's for the future. Think of all the wealth of the machines and devices you see around you. Computers and the internet and high-powered cars and rocket ships. Where did it all come from? just taxes, just printing money? No, They came from the mind of a scientist. And that's why we have to inspire young people and tell them that's where the jobs are. The jobs are gonna be in high technology and fields related to high technology that are being revolutionized by this technology. That's where wealth, that's where the jobs of the future are gonna come from, not taxes or printing money. We've been speaking with
0: theoretical physicist and author Michio Kaku. His new book is The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Professor Kaku, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR1, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space news coverage online. Visit wmfe.org slash space. You can also stay connected to this show. Give our Facebook page a like. Search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. That's A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.